You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So like in elementary school, they were like, it's important to know your time tables. And I went, I severely disagree. <laughs> as far as rejection goes, the odds are against you anyway. So I know that. I guess math did teach me one thing. Um, I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. You're listening to the Producer's Perspective Podcast with your host, Tony Award winner, Ken Davenport. Hey, folks, begging your pardon. Excuse me. Sorry to barge in. Now let's skip the tears and start on the whole, you know. That was that whole being dead thing sung by none other than the star of Beetlejuice, Mr. Alex Brightman, who happens to be this week's very special guest on the Producers Perspective podcast. Why is it a very special guest? Because this episode of the podcast was recorded live at BroadwayCon this year. That's right. I sat down with Alex in front of a live studio BroadwayCon audience. We talked about his two Tony nominations and his roles in Beetlejuice and School of Rock. And also, we talked about him being a writer with his partner, Drew Gasparini. They've written new musicals, such as The Whipping Boy, and it's kind of a funny story. So you're going to hear audience reaction in this podcast. It was super fun. Enjoy the podcast. Go to BroadwayCon next year so you can see content like this live and in person. Uh, And now let's hear a little more of that tune from Beetlejuice before we get to Alex Brightman live from BroadwayCon. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, KenDavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's KenDavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hi, everybody. Uh, My name is Ken Davenport. This is a live version of my podcast, The Producer's Perspective Podcast, where I ask uh, pillars in the industry like two-time Tony nominee Alex Breitman. Uh, Yeah! (laughs) 
It's a shame he's not talented, not funny, and has no energy whatsoever. It's a real shame. Yes. Uh, so I'm going to ask him questions that are from the producer's perspective, all about where he got, where he is. It's what I do on the podcast, but I'm going to start right in. So, Alex. Hey, Ken. Was there a moment in your life that you can look back, like the moment where you were like, that, I have to do that on stage. Was there, was there that moment in your life? Yes. I think that it's more interesting to think about when you're younger you don't know anything, quite literally. Like there was a moment where I had to figure out this is a pen. And it's the first time I ever saw a pen. You know what I mean? Like you don't know what an apple is or what it tastes like until you eat it. So I think I'm always fascinated about that because there was a first time that I saw theater, like experienced the whole entirety of theaters. That was uh, when I was eight years old and I was at the Winter Garden Theater uh, visiting my grandparents in New Jersey, took me down to New York City um, to see a Broadway show called Cats. And never heard of it. Yeah, never. Uh, it's heard of based it. off of this movie that just came out. Uh, <laughs> Did really uh, well. <laughs> and uh, I saw the show, and I, you know, quite frankly, don't remember. You know, you're eight years old, and it's so long ago. Uh, or perhaps I blocked it out. Who knows? And uh, I remember being sitting there intermission, and uh, before the show intermission, one of these times where it was the show wasn't happening, but I, it had happened, and I found myself just so. Whatever that feeling is, hair standing in the back of my head, chills, some type of feeling that I now can sort of point to as like you get that feeling when you know your life's in the right place, like when you know you're doing something right. And so that just felt right. And I didn't know what theater was, so I couldn't put a name to it. But when I was out of the theater and went back home to uh, my grandparents' house, I was like, whatever that was, more of that. More of that. That's when you decided to be a dancer. That's right. <laughs> that's when I decided to be a cat, a full-time cat. And... I just wanted to be, have the experience of that, whatever that was. I just enjoyed everything about it, the lights, the darkness, the communal aspect of people getting together and then at some point becoming one audience. That to me is like a magic trick when you can get hundreds and thousands of people to like shut up and then it also invoke similar reactions and, and connect without having to turn to each other. I just think there's something still I find fascinating and a bit miraculous about that. So that's only grown since I was eight. And But that moment, I remember very specifically, like, this is going to be something about who I am. That's what I love about the theater, actually. You can get 2,000 people a night of all different ages, races, genders, sex, all in one place and all just focused on one mission, one author's message. So what was the first... After that eight-year-old experience, yeah. what was the first experience on stage for you? I auditioned about a year later, this painstaking um, year, because I think there was a cutoff age-wise for the community theater in California, where I'm from. Um, and it, I auditioned for uh, the Children's Musical Theater of San Jose, uh, which was I didn't know then was to become an enormous part of my life and um, development. And I auditioned for a production of The Christmas Carol uh, as a musical, A Christmas Carol, excuse me. And uh, I was about, you know, three inches tall. And so I was like a shoe-in for Tiny Tim, which I played uh, wonderfully. And my, as my parents like to say, I haven't grown since. Um, but I, it was one of those theaters that auditioned, that uh, cast everybody who auditioned. So, which just seems like one of those things where you're like, well, then great. How do you know who's talented? But what, what I find to be spectacular about that is that it, it shows you that theater is not about talent. Theater is about community. And so that's what I learned first about theater is that it is a community-based thing where it is about uh, you know, pushing each other up and holding each other when you're falling and then the talent stuff can come later. But it really at its core, 
what that place taught me for the upwards of 40 something shows I did there before I left for college was that it truly is just about developing relationships. That's what good theater is. And so that first show was uh, Christmas Carol and I legitimately never stopped until this moment right now. I mean, I haven't stopped. You have a show in just... I have a show in an hour or two or, you know, whatever time it is. I have a show in a couple hours. Was there ever a doubt in your mind that this was going to be the thing that you did for no the doubt. rest of it? No doubt. You nope. were just the bullet train. I, I, it, was, it, it was the only thing that was consistent and has be, continued to be consistent in my life. Through school, I found out I was very bad at everything else. I mean, I just was... I tried... It wasn't for lack of trying. I just wasn't interested in being good at math. I, I became very resentful of science. <laughs> I was like, well, who's to say? You know, it's like, why can't we be creative? Why does it have to be two plus two? Is it four? Who knows? You know, I was like that kid. Um, but I just was just more creative than I wanted to be uh, smart, I guess. And so I developed the stuff that I thought would be important to me and sort of like offloaded stuff that I didn't think. Here's the mistake I made is I learned way too early that things like math wouldn't be important to me. <laughs> so like in elementary school, they were like, it's important to know your times tables. And I went, I severely disagree. <laughs> and I, to be honest, I mean, they're very important to some, but I haven't used them in years. So you can't always get cast as Tiny Tim. There had to be on this, uh, <laughs> no, no, on no. this rise to who you are today. There had yeah. to be moments where you didn't get the part or that knocked you down. How did you get up from those moments? And how do you still now? Oh, right? absolutely. More now than ever, because I think that's the thing. Is like There isn't a lot of places that do that, like cast everybody thing. It's a wonderful thing. I wish Broadway did it more. <laughs> um, uh, but then Broadway would just be weird. It'd just be like 900 people in shows and uh, the pay would be very low. And uh, uh, but I, Rejection is part of this business. And again, one of those things I learned early on is just that like, if I was able to be a part of a show, I was happy. It was never about a lead. It was never about the type of role. I am still, and my agents know this to a fault. They don't like me saying this out loud. I am the guy that would absolutely go from playing Beetlejuice to playing Third Shrub to the left as long as I'm in a show. I am most happy when I am in a process and being able to be creative, and I do not care at what level. Um, I'm not above the ensemble. I'm not, I would rather be in a show than not be one because it's below me or beneath me. I don't believe in that. So as far as rejection goes, you know, the odds are against you anyway. So I know that. I guess math did teach me one thing. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I just know, you know, there's 10 million actors and one person gets a role. So it's like my mindset is when I get a phone call, this has become more of a funny thing from my agents and they go, yeah, it's not going your way or you didn't get the part. I go, yeah, why would anybody get any part? <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, it's ridiculously against you. So to not get one is, you know, you're in a bigger group there than you are in getting the role. Um, getting a role is wonderfully isolating <laughs> because then you are it and then you have something to prove. Not getting it, the pressure's off. <laughs> You know, if you don't get a role, no big deal. Go eat some McDonald's and, you know, you know, quell your feelings. Don't and eat McDonald's. Don't eat McDonald's. Uh, <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by Taco Bell. And <laughs> no, you know, it's like, that's, that's right. Um, no, but it's that thing where, you know, 
it's part of life. So thick skin is a big part of this business, but also I work super hard, but don't take things too seriously. And I think that's a very good distinction. Like I work as hard as I possibly can. And at that same exact level, I try not to take any, almost anything that seriously. So that when rejection happens, it's like, yeah, fine. Yeah. The moment you do take, I'm uh, God, I hope I get it. I have to get it. I have to get it. You become a little desperate. And then frankly, you don't usually get those ones. Right? And it becomes like, I don't look at theater or auditioning like a pass fail system because it's, it's not, it's totally subjective. And to look at auditioning or theater as anything but subjective, open to opinion, is crazy. To think it's like objectively, if anything's objectively good or bad, that doesn't make sense to me. It should be a conversation. No, no, not everyone should like every show. We should be able to argue and stuff like that. So when, you know, you go in going like, it's either I get it or I'm gonna quit show business, I just think you're in the wrong business. And as I like to say a lot of the time, if you really want to be unhappy, go do a job that pays you more because we don't get paid a lot of money. <laughs> it's like, you know, you can be unhappy in a job that pays you way more money than musical theater. So that's my advice when I tell people like, I'm really, I don't like what I'm doing. I'm like, well, then go work in a coal mine and make a bunch of money doing that and still be unhappy or be really happy and make less money like what I do. Can you talk to me a little bit about what you believe the actor's role in the creative process of a new show is? You've been lucky enough to be a part of two huge musicals, yeah. School of Rock and Beetlejuice, from really early stages. Yeah. And a lot of people think shows are just written and then they get to Broadway, but you were involved in the early stages. Talk to me about what you think an actor's role is. Yeah, there. and just to put it out there, also Big Fish, which I was, you know, oh, right, that right, I right, helped, right. Uh, which was, you know, one of those times that like all that creative energy and collaboration, which I'm about to talk about, you know, you, you, they worked on this show for nine years, um, six, uh, seven of it before they even brought actors on board. And then we closed in three months. So like, think about that when you like, you know, what I'm about to say about collaboration, but I believe that the actor's role is it changes in every show because the directors and the creative people and uh, everyone that has decided to allow you to be a part of this has their own idea about what your role is too. So I think it's, it's good for an actor to first listen and not come in with their own, like, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna improvise and you guys are gonna write around me. That's not how things work in my world. I am always very sensitive to the idea of writers, um, as a writer too, to understand that like they have a message and a point of view they wanna get out there. My job is to like, convey that message as best as possible. And if I have ideas, I make double sure that they want to hear them. If they don't want to hear them, I don't want to fight. You know, it's, I think it's good. You know, if I, it, fighting for your ideas is one thing, but like just generating ideas no one wants to hear doesn't help. It's all about collaboration. Is this okay? Is that okay? Um, thankfully, as a great example, Alex Timbers, who directed Beetlejuice and some of the most creative things you've ever seen, his least favorite thing as far as I'm concerned is is actors who ask permission which I love so what he wants is the actors to come in and have thoughts and have uh, arguments and debate and we didn't we spent so much time joking and talking rather than rehearsing that what came out was what you're seeing on stage which is something that is wholly vaudevillian and weird and you know where anything can happen and uh, that was due to a ton of conversation we had beforehand. Like, what do you want to do here? And we talked in private and in public, like, we want to play. Okay, great. They hired the right people. They hired people to ask questions and to poke and to prod. And with uh, School of Rock, we had a less time. That's really the only thing. We had, within inception of the show to Broadway, it was within a year, which is 
I don't think has ever happened. Unless you have billions of dollars like Andrew Lloyd Webber, you can't make that happen. Um, I don't think. And so we had less time to play. We had to like come up with a show. So it was like the same process of Beetlejuice except synthesized into like, you know, five months. Was there something about that pro? Because we, I hear about this a lot. Like I've developed a bunch of musicals. It takes yeah. eight years. Yeah. I re- David Henry Huang, who was on my podcast, said to me that the first time he ever heard M. Butterfly, the play, read out loud by actors, was on the first day of rehearsal for the Broadway production. That's there nuts. Were, there were no readings. There was none of the stuff. These extrapolated development process. Do you think we can overread these things or overdevelop them sometimes? Well, I think times have changed, certainly, with how much things cost, first of all. Like, and you know, if, if we're talking things like the producer's perspective, it's like, from what I know about um, developing a musical and the, the more and more I'm learning about developing even television stuff is that producers in general and people that are, you know, financing a show, now more than ever, want to be assured as close to 100% as they can that this show is going to work. So that's why so many workshops, so many things get read. But I do think what suffers because of that is the material. I do think that, uh, you know, sometimes people write really good first drafts. But because of this now culture of like, we got to do a reading and then a two-week workshop and then we're going to do a four-week lab and then we're going to do a dancer's lab and this, the writers get in their own heads and go, is this show good anymore? And I think sometimes, like I think Big Fish, I think we had just enough time to write the show worse than it already was. Like the show was in really good shape in Chicago and Chris Jones, I think brilliantly said from the Chicago Tribune said, the one mistake this show could make is to make too many changes before they put it on Broadway. And he was right. I think we just started to make these changes because we had the time, you know. And that's not um, a testament to anybody in any negative way. It's just the culture of theater. You are in a room all the time reading this material and producers are at your, you know, that you're, you're breathing down your neck to make it amazing. So the amazing is a really hard bell to ring because it always changes. So I think that is a tough thing. But when, yeah, I think I, I would love it if we could hear things sooner rather than having them read to the ground. That would be like my thing as a writer. Like I would love to hear it. The minute I write something, I want to hear it. So uh, I know it's right or wrong, rather than letting it marinate and going, oh, maybe it's not great. Well, t- you mentioned, you, when did you start writing? Uh, I had a big breakup. <laughs> I just like, I like to bring it up because I think it's funny. Um, uh, life changes will make your creative process wonderful. I want to put a date on it. 2012, 13, I started like really actually putting my mind to writing things that I wanted to finish. Um, I think every actor has some folder on their computer that says writing projects. And then it's just like, you know, a page and a half of like Jerry and Dan talking about the game they're going to. And you're like, and then it's over. And it's like, I'm not going to finish that project. Uh, but I really started trying to like beginning, middle and end things in around 2013. And just, I didn't know how to write. I didn't, I knew how to act. So I've read scripts. I know what they look like. So I just read everything I possibly could on how to write and then ingested it and then tried to output and it was bad, and then it was less bad, and then it was like medium good, and then it got good, and then things went well. But I continue to work on it. I mean, writing again, it's all subjective. Were you nervous about telling people that you now write? Yes, (laughs) yes, because that, you know, the minute you tell somebody you're doing something, the next thing they want to know is when can I see it? Um, And so that actually ended up becoming a good thing for me, because I was like, I'm writing this thing, and then two weeks later, a friend of mine would go, where's that thing you're writing? And that puts a fire under your ass to actually go like, oh, accountability is a good thing for when you're a writer because you're your own boss. And so deadlines don't necessarily matter if no one's paying you. 
So you wake up in the morning, you don't feel like writing, and then that happens 20 times in a row, and then you lose your project. So I set my mind to, the first thing I ever wrote was a, 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 this musical I wrote with my, my writing partner, Drew, um, Gasparini, who's just, who's just announced he's writing the Karate Kid musical, which is super cool. Um, but we, I set deadlines for myself like I was being paid. I had three months before my next thing I knew I was doing. I sat at a Barnes and Noble for five hours a day with a computer open in the, tried to get the same spot every day. If some days there were zero things that happened and some days I would, I picked my head up and it had been five hours and I had written 60 pages. So in three months we wrote the first draft, terrible draft, vomited out, but it was finished. So we had something to work on. And I think that was where I learned about like actual self accountability. That's an amazing, like there are so many things about that story that people take decades and decades to learn or get coached on. Yeah. This idea of what paying yourself, like yes. you would show, if, a, if you're bought what, the job you hate, right? You would show up tomorrow just because someone is paying you. Right. But something you dream about doing, it's very hard to show up for. So this idea of thinking like you're being paid. I know some people out there that actually pay themselves. They take a little money, they put it away and they buy themselves something at the end of the week, at the end of the month when they finish the work going to the same I'm one of those people going to the same place every day having a little office doing a little something yeah. do, working regardless of what comes out so smart and then what I love is that yeah you when you have something I always say it's like a sculpting when you have a lump of clay in the middle of the room it's much easier to shape that lump of clay into something good but before you have a lump of clay you can't do anything and I always I say this a lot to because I now have have this sort of like uh, annoying thing that I do to people that are creative most recently was to Rob McClure. He's writing, he had this idea to write this um, sort of adjacent Peter Pan novel about Smee, a sort of an origin story for Smee. Brilliant idea. And right it is. Brilliant. And, the, and the way he described it to me and watching him describe it, his eyes would light up and that's when you know something's right, when someone gets excited to talk about the thing they're doing. And I told him the worst mistake you could have made was telling me this because now I'm going to keep checking in on you about it. And he's like constantly writing it because what I like to say a lot of the time, and I said it to Rob, telling me about the thing that you're writing is just like a magician telling you about the magic trick they're gonna do. It's much more impressive if you just do it. And I think that is like something I've learned. It's like, you tell, oh, I'm doing all these cool projects. And like, and then three years later, they go, where's that project? I'm still, I'm still working on it, but it's great. And you're like, so you're never working on it. You just wanna tell people you're doing something. We're in an age where that's very easy to do. You can tweet out, oh, I'm writing this great project. Can't tell you what it's about. And then 17 years later, you're dead and there's no project. <laughs> that's you don't know, or the next day, who, who knows? Yeah, I, I have a book called How to Mouths Agape. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. You know, ideas actually, you can't even copyright an idea. Like That's legally, right. you can't copyright it. They're worth nothing until you put some pen to paper and get it done. And now I'm going to write a note to talk to Rob about that great idea. It's a great idea, truly. And But, I, you know, it's also that, uh, you know, you can't, uh, the idea, the, exactly right. You can't say, when I, when I hate when people go, you know, a TV show comes out or a musical happens and they go, I had that idea. And I go, you didn't. <laughs> It's this Facebook thing. If you, if you thought of Facebook, you would have invented Facebook. Yeah. It's that great line, I think, from that movie from the guy no one likes anymore, I guess. But, <laughs> but at the time, he was, I guess... He's some, listening. Just sure, be careful. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a great line. It's like that, I, guess, I imagine it's Aaron Sorkin's line, but it's a great line. If you had invented Facebook, you would have invented Facebook. You can say, I had the idea, but until it's yours, it's not yours. It's about the doing rather than, than just Absolutely. The, the thinking. Yeah. Do you, you're about to perform in just a few <laughs> minutes, actually. Yes. Uh, do, you, do you get nervous before you go on stage? Hell yeah. Really? So today yeah. at right 2.55, now. right now. Yeah. 
This is not, I mean, this is abnormal. Everyone here, it looks like you're all about to come fight me. You're all standing in the same direction. You're all standing, I'm outnumbered here in this way. And so this is super abnormal uh, of a situation. It's, this is not a thing. You know, this is a construct that you were all agreed that you're facing this way and you have to be quiet. But at any time, you could just get up and charge the table. And you haven't, and that's great. And, but I, I, I've said this too, the, <laughs> she's getting up to, um, at, it, I wish you could all see at, backstage at Beetlejuice in every show, but it's funny with Beetlejuice because it's such a crazy, funny show that everyone's backstage and we're just chit-chatting, whatever. We're all in costume and we're chatting right before the show starts. 1,500 people out in the audience uh, who have expected a show that their friends told them about that we need to do perfectly and execute well. And everyone's backstage like, you know, if you just saw us five minutes before the show, you would be like, are they even doing a show? And then the minute, the second, the moment, the smallest amount of time, the moment a stage manager goes, stand by, which means the show is about to start in legitimately five seconds, everyone goes like this. They'll be talking like this and they go... <clears throat> and you just watch a wash of nerves over everybody. So I, I say that to like comfort other actors who are like, oh, they must not get nervous. No, we're nervous all the time. It's just that's, that's the real act is that like pretending not to be nervous your entire life. Um, it was like, you know, I'm sweating my, you know, balls off up here, you know, but I'm pretending to be calm. So this is the act. I'm really a serial killer. <laughs> is there... You've done a lot of new stuff. Yeah. Is there a classic role in musical theater that you want to do um, that I could revive? Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. I was just going to say, I was trying to find who said you that. Went there, you went there. You went there. I was going to make some sort of off-key joke about being like, I'd love to play Harold Hill if they were ever doing a production sometime soon. Um, no, they've they've had enough. Everyone leave them alone. They're they're not. They've done nothing to nobody except an entire company of people. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I I mean I not really. I mean I'm not a big. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I like watching those musicals. I don't know if I'm built for those musicals. Maybe older plays. Um, I know that like you know I would love to do a production of the show Art. Um, I would love to do. Uh, I mean at some point to do a production of God of Carnage. It's just one of my favorite plays, and both by Yasmina Reza, I just realized. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, more of like, I would perform more in something of a revival of a play than a musical. And quite frankly, because of Beetlejuice, I'm a little musicaled out. Because <laughs> Beetlejuice is so much musical that I just like, I think the next thing needs to be like me in a coma <laughs> in a play where people talk about my character. And I'm just in the coma the whole time. And then at the end, I get to go, I'm alive. And then the curtain drops. And that's my whole role. <laughs> And I still get paid whatever I'm worth. You've done uh, television stuff as well. What's yeah. the difference between performing on stage in front of 1,500 people yeah. and then in front of a camera? That's more just money. More money. <laughs> that's that's that when I found my first ever television check. I was like, oh my god, I've been in the wrong business for two decades. Um, I, can't, is there an acting style? There, like, yeah, there certainly is. My wife, I'm quoting my wife right now. My wife is a casting director for television, and she uh, talks about boxes, like every. Uh, every medium in creative arts is just boxes. They're bigger and smaller boxes. So you perform for the box that you're in. So on, in, in the theater is a much bigger box. So you're performing for that space. In on a movie, you're performing what you know is to be on a screen, which is a smaller but still big box. And for television, you are performing at your smallest. And Michael Caine teaches that you know on camera you just do nothing, which is like, uh, you know, sometimes you watch a TV show and you're like, wow, they really took his advice. They're not doing anything. Um, but no, it is a muscle to stretch for sure for me because I'm broad in general. I mean, I'm just big and 
Uh, uh, really? Yeah. <laughs> 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 Screw Haven't you, seen Ken. the opening number Screw of Beetlejuice you, at Ken. all. <laughs> Whatever. I'm never listening to this podcast. Um, so it is, but I learned from Marcy Phillips, who's a casting director at ABC, she said, this is a muscle you're going to have to flex. It's just, it's taking everything that you do, not losing any of the personality you have to offer, and just synthesizing it and boiling it down to drops and not a flood. And so, and I think that that's been a very important, I, and also, again, quite frankly, the stuff I have done on television has been borderline broad stuff. Documentary now, and you know, the, even on The Good Fight, oh, thank you. Fans of cocaine. Um, <laughs> That, but like you know, for example, like I'm, there's a, I'm com a movie's coming out maybe I think this summer that I did with Billy Crystal and Tiffany Haddish, and it's really funny, but it takes place in like an SNL type setting. So again, not much subtlety had to be used. So I am waiting for that role that like allows me to sort of be more vulnerable and dramatic, which is something I would die to do. You know, I have sort of become a little bit more of the wild person on Broadway, but I I have a sensitive side, you guys. <laughs> Alex Brayman in the coma. <laughs> the coma. Uh, all right, my last question as we're winding down here, which I ask all of my podcast guests. It's my genie question. Oh. I want you to imagine my James Lipton actor studio moment here. I was imagining James Iglehart. <laughs> so imagine the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you. You have okay. such a positive attitude, and I love everything about what you do, both on stage and off. Thank you. And the genie says, I'm going to grant you one wish. Okay. What's the one thing that drives you crazy about Broadway, that frustrates you, that really gets you, that you'd wish you could change in an instant, you cannot say the music man? Nope, wasn't going to. But the one thing that you want to change for the better about Broadway? I wish someone would invent, I guess I wouldn't have to invent it if it was a genie, it would just happen, but I do wish desperately someone would invent some type of a device or machine that would knock out the signal on cell phones completely. <laughs> During the uh, length of a Broadway show, and they could, be, and it doesn't mess with the phone, it doesn't do anything, it just completely disables their phone for the entirety of the production, and then when they're done, it's over. They can't use it. Even if they try, the phone doesn't work. The whole phone, not taking a phone call. The whole phone is a black screen. Um, I'm really a big fan of these pouches that are happening. Yeah, they're um, amazing. I do, and I think that the, they're only going to get more seamless at how they actually work, and they already are so seamless. But I think they're just, there's got to be some sort of signal. I'm sure it's like totally like hacky and like you know they would have to i think iran has it that's <laughs> right, yeah, i was gonna say i'm sure like they're already sort of working on that for nef more nefarious things uh somewhere um but i do i just really wish people would just in this and i sympathize because younger people with phones it's just you that's what you were born with and that's a thing you know and so i do sympathize with younger people who do want to capture everything as currency um but to know this it, Soul points mean more than, uh, you know, sharing things. Like if you just can gather, the memory of a show in your head is so much better than when you watch it back like 17 times. Because if you just remember the show as being good, that's all you need to remember. If you remember the show being good and then you watch it back five times and go, it was okay, you've ruined it for yourself, I think. I think whether you admit it or not, watching something back and back and back and back and back, it's not helpful and it's also not live. So I feel compelled a lot of the time to try and just spread that message of like, it's live theater. So please just like enjoy it live. Like we things are there's plenty of things to enjoy on screen. There's way more than enough things to enjoy on screen. Don't give yourself the horrible opportunity to try and watch something that people have crafted for months and years and watch it on your phone like this with bad sound coming up because you dropped in a toilet once. Um, that is absolutely not what we rehearsed for. It is absolutely not what we planned on doing it for. Um, 
we want you to be there. Um, and I, if my other wish that's adjacent to that is to make it more affordable. I know that's a big thing for people and I get it. And I am not in charge <laughs> of ticket prices. If I was, they'd all be free, but then I wouldn't be paid. So, uh, you know, it's a cycle, but I do, hope in the future there is some sort of middle ground we can all reach so that people don't feel the need to reach for their phones all the goddamn time. Um, so yeah, that's it. My genie wish would be no phones in theaters. I, I, I love this idea of just the memory of it being more powerful than anything you can watch live. It's and always going to be better in your head. Always. And let it be. Just to bring it full circle, that's what inspired... The memory of seeing Cats when you were eight years old going home was what inspired you to do everything that you did I mean, to literally. be here today. That's right. And if it has not... that for, Were it not for that memory, I would not be anywhere... Oh, God. See how I set him up you, for that? I forgot where I was for one second. You reminded me that I was at Broadway Con. Thank you, everybody. Go no, see the movie of Cats. Yeah. <laughs> Go see the movie of Cats. Go see... Um, no, but that's it. I do think that is exactly right. That whole thing is just why people do what they do is because they had some sort of uh, held on to memory of something that is important to them, and that's kind of fundamentally makes them who they are. So if it was ruined by a cell phone, I might be, you know, a construction worker at this point, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'd be the funniest... Uh, best singing construction worker you've ever heard in your life who could do a really good Beetlejuice voice. Uh. Well, I'm so thankful for Cats because it brought <laughs> you here today. Thank you so much to Thanks, Alex everybody. Brightman, everybody. Thank you, Ken. Thanks to all of you for coming. Thanks to Broadway Podcast Network and for BroadwayCon for having us. Listen to theproducersperspective.com and we'll see you there next time. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Thanks so much to Alex for hanging out with me at BroadwayCon this year, and thanks to BroadwayCon for having us. If you're excited about this new, very special season of the Producers Perspective podcast, please do me a favor. Give us a big old fat, juicy kiss review on Apple Podcast. Helps other theater makers and theater fans like you find these conversations and enjoy them. If you're looking for more theater podcasts like this and even better ones, check out Broadway Podcast Network. It's the brand new community and platform for Broadway-themed podcasts and all sorts of other online content. To find more about me and learn about all my projects, Broadway and beyond, you can follow me on Instagram at Ken Davenport B-Way or check out my blog. Sign up at theproducersperspective.com. And now, drum roll, please. This week's hashtag songwriter of the week is Sam Salmond. Check out his song, Keep On Fighting, from his musical called The Homefront. Listen to it, and then for more information, check out his website, Sam Salmond, S-A-M-S-A-L-M-O-N-D.com, or at Sam Salmond on Instagram. Support new writers. All you have to do is just listen to them. That is support enough, and then share it. We'll see you next week on the Producers Perspective Podcast. So remember when it feels like they've torn us apart. We're meant to keep on. When we end up, it's where the next people start. We're meant to keep on. When we feel broken, defeated, and now we're gonna keep on. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org, because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.